Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I'm fortunate to talk to an incredibly kind teacher and scholar who has done so much for people inside and outside academia. Paula Matthew has devoted her life to pushing the walls of education and expanding our understandings of writing and literacy. She is deeply committed to community engagement, partnerships, and social justice. In her book, Tactics of Hope, The Public Turn in English Composition, she writes, quote, The most important lessons about writing I have learned come from working with writers who are or have been homeless. Paula Matthew is a writer and teacher. She works at Boston College, where she is Associate Professor of English and Director of First Year Writing. She teaches courses in writing as social action, first-year writing, mindful storytelling, creative nonfiction, and rhetoric. She wrote Tactics of Hope, The Public Turn in English Composition, and co-edited three essay collections, including Circulating Communities, The Tactics and Strategies of Community Publishing. In this episode, we talk about mindfulness and contemplative practices, how writing teachers can foster kindness and self-reflection, And she carefully examines the current state of writing studies and offers future direction. Paula, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by talking about incorporating mindfulness in the classroom. In your article, Being There, you write, quote, Mindful awareness practices can help us teach both the human and the being, which can lead to more ethical practice, end quote. Do you mind sharing What got you interested in mindfulness and contemplative practices and how that informs your teaching? So I think simple, I think definitions are always useful. And I think John Kabat-Zinn defines mindfulness as non-judgmental awareness of the current moment. And he says, paying attention as if your life depended on it. And then he always says, which of course it does. And for me, it's the the non-judgmental awareness, which is really a challenge, I think, for me and for students. And I got interested in bringing more contemplative and mindful practices into my teaching, mainly because it was what I needed as a human being. It wasn't because I'm somehow an expert and this really um, fully self-actualized person, but more that I realized that the kind of the chatter in my own brain and that sort of the stories that I tell myself in my head that I never circulate to anyone else are sometimes the most powerful stories that I tell and they're often powerfully disabling. And I realized that the same thing is often true with students, that you could look at students who are very potentially well qualified to be in the classroom, who are smart, who are capable, and they're really struggling And then another student who might not seem as prepared or as capable, but they're flourishing. And some of the differences have to do with their own sort of hidden stories about themselves, the beliefs they have, the fears they have. And so part of contemplative work I do in the writing classroom is to kind of acknowledge that whole set of kind of that inner rhetoric that we all have that either tells ourselves, hey, I can do this, or I can't. And, you know, there's lots of scholarship on, you know, whether we have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset and all this kind of stuff. But I feel like in a writing classroom, at least I wasn't focusing so much on what are the 
deep-seated kind of fears or beliefs that the students come in with that they might not even want to share and maybe they don't even need to share them. So that was part of what got me started. Um, And then also my background working in community-based writing, doing community projects with a lot of people from very different kind of class positions, very different racial histories, very different kind of just life histories, and seeing the personal dysfunction that would arise that could really undo a lot of great projects or cut projects short, and realizing that each and every one of us has work to do to kind of come to terms with who we are, and are we either adding to that kind of noise and dysfunction, or are we adding sort of greater kind of equanimity? Are we kind of injecting peace and some sort of sense of compassion into our scene? Or are we bringing reactivity? Are we bringing stuff? And so as a scholar, it was when I I was asked um, a question once, what does it mean to be a responsive teacher or scholar was the question. Um, It was from the 20, I think, 13 Watson Symposium. And and my immediate response was being present to those students who are actually in your class. Because I know as a teacher and also working with new teachers, how often we work with ghosts. We think about the class we had last semester, which either was awesome or didn't go that well, and how we're kind of teaching to that student we couldn't get through to last semester or the student who got under our skin. This is a long way of saying my interest in mindfulness came from realizing how hard it is to be truly present in the classroom with the students you have because you have to plan a class before you've met those students and you have to kind of build it based on these assumptions of what they need, which may or may not be true once they get there. And so how do you, as a teacher, be fully mindful and present with the students? But then also, how do we help the students in their own lives, which are hectic and crazy and um, often very stressful, to be present in the moments that they're in, that so that their education just doesn't become a blur of classes. And, you know, how do they find moments of meaning and really connect? How does mindfulness help you see writing and what writing does or can do? I think what I love about writing is seeing writing as seeing writing as a tool for living right? Like it's a basic tool for living, that it's not just about academic success, that 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 can be important, but it can also be about helping you be present in a moment. It can be something that helps yourself. It can be an interpersonal tool to help you reconcile something with another person through a letter or through some kind of written exchange. And then it can also be a means of social action. So how do I participate in the wider world and try to help, you know, heal the world that I'm in? And, you know, so for me, writing works on all those levels. Um, But I don't think at least the writing classes I took coming up in the world, I wasn't taught writing in those ways. And so for me, why I want there to be mindful practices to help students see writing as a tool that can help them with their daily lives, to help them slow down, pay attention to the current moment, and just be aware of the ways that they're being judgmental or non-judgmental about themselves or others around them. In what ways do you incorporate 
compassion and mindfulness in the writing classroom? For example, do you use a charter for compassion or do you encourage students to self-reflect or use deep breathing exercises? Well, I think it depends on what the classroom is and how much of that experience students have signed up for. (laughs) Um, So I do teach one class that's an elective and it's called mindful storytelling. So pretty much all those things you've mentioned that we do breathing, whole body meditation, we do drawing, we have a, we um, do writing exercises. um, And then we do a lot of writing that interrogates what are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves or the world that we'd like to revise. So that's a class that's contemplative at its very foundations. And students choose to be in that kind of classroom. In a first-year writing classroom, try to introduce mindfulness as a way to help us slow down and be better writers, that mindfulness is a tool for writing and also that writing is a tool for mindfulness, which brings greater well-being and helps people get through their daily lives. Because I think of first-year writing as really an introduction to the university and how do you help students come from wherever they've come from, leave their families, be in the space that, um, depending on their race and gender and class status, is either a small step or a huge and alienating step. Like, how do they kind of be in that space and not feel... Um, like they don't belong there. So in my first year writing class, I, you know, I introduced breathing uh, exercises like that in small ways, just to call us all to attention, you know, to welcome everyone to the space and, um, and start the class in a way where we have a shared focus. Starting last fall, I do two things right at the beginning of the semester. The first day of class, I assign students to write a letter to themselves as writers about a thought or an idea they have about themselves as writers that they would like to change. And that's the full instructions and it's due the second day of class. And so they don't know me, they don't know anything. Um, And so I've only, I only started it last fall, so I'm doing it again, but the students wrote these extraordinary letters that were full of just all kinds of doubts and pains, but then also with this really great advice, like they showed how they know quite a bit already about writing. And so what I did is I took all the letters and I created two kind of side-by-side essays using a sentence from each student's piece. You know, it's a little kind of what you're doing with the podcast. It took a little bit of editing and massaging to make them all go together. But um, one half was kind of airing all their fears about their inadequacies and what they can't do as writers. And then the other was the essay of, you know, expressing their hopes or beliefs on what they might be able to do. And um, we write, read that in class. And I think it helps students see that they're not the only ones. And students were really surprised. They said, I thought I was the only one who felt this way. And I think it really helped them sort of see that there's this you know, underlife of inside of everybody, that we all have these voices that talk to ourselves and to realize that they're it's just a it's just what minds do that the nature of the mind is to create thoughts and some of them will be positive and some will be negative you know that doesn't mean they're necessarily true Paula you have been incredibly influential to the development of community engaged pedagogies you are one of the pioneers for community partnerships and community writing in rhetoric and composition 
Do you mind providing a brief definition for community-engaged pedagogies? It's usually working with you know community groups, often who are lower income, but not always. Um, but then it's also taken the form of you know people doing community publishing. There's now healthy prison writing or writing between college students and prisoners, and so it's not only student involved. It can be faculty involved. It can be also independent community groups may have started in in an institution but evolved to be their own their own nonprofits. I think community writing is kind of the extracurriculum where it's writing when people are doing it not for some other reason. They're not doing it for a grade. They're not doing it for um, credentializing, but they're doing it for some other community purpose, whether it's to try to make change in their community or record something in their community or um, help address a problem in their community. So I understand that this next question might be too broad or too problematic or too generalizing, but I'm thinking about Tactics of Hope, which was published in 2005. And I'm really curious as to whether you think writing studies and writing classrooms have done a good job supporting this kind of public turn. And then what challenges do you continue to see working against programs and classrooms when it comes to building relationships with community organizations? I actually loved this question when I saw it and I was like, oh, this is a great question. So I don't think it's too broad at all. And um, so I just want to preface this by saying everything I'm saying is a generalization and I'm not trying to indict specific people or programs or ideas. But I do, I think there's some amazing work going on in community engaged writing. And I think that the Coalition for Community Writing and the Conference for Community Writing is an amazing place for that to happen. And the journal, um, Community Literacy Journal, is publishing a lot of that work. So I think there's an incredibly vibrant aspect of our field that is just so exciting and so rich. But at the same time, I feel like the push for writing studies and that terminology, to me, threatens to be more about disciplinarity and what writing means only within the bounds of the university and within the full life of a student or a community or the world. Um, and I worry that a push toward writing about writing or threshold concepts and these kinds of um, very measurable kind of outcomes driven scholarship, empirical scholarship risks sort of the, the conscience and the guts that, you know, that the Paulo Freire kind of legacy of composition, the Lester Fagley kind of um, legacy of composition, that we need to support the public sphere, that community-engaged writing, place-based writing, getting students to write about places, to think about the vibrancy of a place, to think about, you know, the engagement in the world, that can be quite different than what does it mean to be successful in your major. And, you know, and those aren't, I think, opposite goals. I don't think they're, um, you know, I don't think it's wrong to teach students to care about success in the in the academy, but I don't think a writing class should be equivalent to success in the university. I think that's too small a vision for what writing should be, and certainly too small a vision for what writing studies should be. And 
Um, so it's a generalization to say that's what people who support a kind of a disciplinary writing studies approach would support. But I think there is that tendency to want things to be measurable and to be scholarly and to be um, very intellectual, very thought-based, where I, I feel like my commitments are to disrupting that a little bit and to say, sometimes thinking is the very problem. <laughs> sometimes our ideas about who we are as scholars is the problem. We need to ask more questions and um be more humble and listen more and be part of the community and and um, do the anti-racist work and do some of this kind of stuff that doesn't necessarily look like measurable outcomes-based writing to, to be the best version of who we can be as a field. Where would you encourage rhetoric and composition to turn now? There has been more of a turn toward disciplinarity and a turn toward professionalism in a way that I don't think is problematic per se, but it's problematic when that becomes all that we are. You know, I think it's good for many things. I think it's good for students who maybe for programs that have a major in writing or who want to um, people go on to get PhDs in comp ret. But to me, that's a very small slice of who comes to a university, very small. And thinking about what else is writing good for is a much bigger question um, that to me is really exciting. That includes thinking about writing as a form of social action and writing as a form of contemplative action and writing as, um, you know, a form of just slowing ourselves down that somehow writing just helps us slow down in a world that's sped up way too fast. That to me, those are just as useful um, and, and that there needs to be a balance. And if we're only focusing on the intellect, we lose the values we learn from bodies and emotions and stillness and all this other less quantifiable stuff, you know, and when there's a lot of push toward empirical research, and I know you can do empirical research on contemplation and much is being done in the sciences for which I'm grateful, but I also think there should be place for writing pedagogies that embrace things that aren't empirical because to me, writing is a tool for living and managing an institution and, and kind of getting, um, you know, being able to navigate successfully through an institution is one aspect of living, but that's just one small aspect of living and um, having peace inside your own head or being able to um, understand more deeply your motives for doing something. You know, some of the um, work in our field that I'm most interested in now is really narrative based, um, really um, focusing on like, why do we do the work we do? What are our motivations? What are the stories that we often don't share? A great book, um, by Amy Robillard called We Find Ourselves in Other People's Stories, um, which has been really influential to me, that this idea that there's reasons that we get interested in the work that we do, and we should be more willing to share those stories and be more embracing of narrative and storytelling. And if we become a field that only embraces its kind of analytic uh, disciplinary side, we lose something. So I don't have a problem with writing about writing or threshold concepts being part of the field. But when I worry when that becomes the sum total of what the field is and that 
public writing or personal writing or interpersonal writing or other kinds of writing become seen or narrative writing um, become seen as less um, valuable or less central. Eli Goldblatt gave a, I was on a panel, fortunate enough to be on a panel with Eli a few years ago at Four Seas, and he talked about Mike Rose's On the Boundaries, and that being the first book someone had ever given him, which made him want to pursue a career in kind of writing and rhetoric. And um, and so um, I thought that was a really powerful statement, thinking about like, what are, you know, the books that we want graduate students to read? What are the core kind of ideas? And how do we engage people's minds and their passions, their emotions, their hearts, you know, that it's not just about intellectual work. And it's about um, the stories we have and the lives we've led and the emotions we have. Like that's all to me just as important as sort of the um, the analytic ideas and the arguments that we can make. Um, and so how do we make room for that too? You know, that it's, that we can have a disciplinary presence and see the value of community and public sphere engagement um, as really important and seeing contemplative work as um, as central to it because if if rhetoric were enough on its own we would have a healthier democracy than we do at the moment that that ideas enough aren't aren't enough you know that having the best um, information having the facts and having the best approaches to persuasion aren't enough because people's People get identified for reasons that aren't necessarily about good ideas. They're about who their friends are, or who their parents are, or where they grew up, or what um, what they're afraid of, or who they love, or what they love. And so we're so deeply identified with our beliefs that we've got to have more creative ways of thinking about how to how to teach that. And it can't just be about intellect because. Um, that's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle. Thank you, Paula. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.